church, family, and friends. Good morning. Good morning. Thankful to be here with you all this morning. Um, from the outset, I want to uh, just apologize real quick because the fall season cannot decide whether it wants to stay or go. Um, I am the personal victim of allergies, so uh, please forgive me if I have to bend down and get some water or clear my throat or something like that. So, But nonetheless, we will go forward this morning. We're going to be in Esther chapter 3. We're continuing in our series studying the book of Esther. Um, obviously, Esther is one big story, but each chapter of Esther has kind of its own story line that that kind of flows into the bigger narrative that's going on in this book. And so, like any great TV series, uh, it's helpful to have a flashback as to what's happened before so that we know where we're at this morning. So, flashback. In chapter 1, we're introduced to the Empire of Persia, with King Ahasuerus reigning from modern-day Sudan all the way to modern-day Pakistan. He's supposedly the most powerful man in the entire world at this point, and in his pomp and self-glory, he throws a drunken festival that lasts for six-plus months, ending with the misogynistic defilement of his own wife, the Queen Vashti. But the Queen refused to be abused by being the amusement of the King and his officials, and so at the council of his advisors, he removes the Queen, deposes her from her position. And then in chapter 2, this all-great, powerful king, again, he listens to the counsel of his advisors and throws what is more than just a beauty contest. And in doing so, he traffics the women from all across the empire, bringing them into his personal harem, taking them from their families, their livelihood, bringing them into his palace so that he can abuse them further by having relations with them that are only meant to be had in the confines of marriage. All so that he could decide which woman he liked the best, and that woman he would make queen. It's in this horrific and debased scene that we're introduced to our imperfect protagonist, Esther. She wins the king's favor, is made queen, and then in part, in a turn of events, saves the king's life. Flashback is over. This is where we begin this morning. As we look at chapter 3, we're going to continue addressing some questions that have arisen in our study thus far of Esther. The first question, where is God? Second question, where is justice? Third, where is the king? Church, let us pray. We'll dive in together this morning. Father, thank you so much that we have the opportunity, God, the privilege to be here, to worship together with brothers and sisters in Christ. God, thank you that we have the opportunity to read your word, that it is delivered to us. Father, help us to understand it. God, speak to us through your word. Speak through me. Father, God, challenge us this morning, this afternoon. Help us to bow down and worship you, God, because you're worthy, just as we just sung about. Well, we ask these things in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Amen. Where is God? 
Pastor Travis, Pastor Sean, respectively, they mentioned the last two weeks that the name of God is not found in the book of Esther. As we see in chapter 3, again, the name of God is not there. And so we have to ask naturally, is God present? Is God at work? Does he care what's going on in the scenes of Esther? We read chapter 3 this morning. I want you to ask that question as we read these verses, asking where is God? Pick up in verse 1 with me. It says this, after these things, after what things? Specifically, the author of Esther is pointing us right back to where the king's life is physically saved. Queen Esther was the one who warned the king of the destruction, the murder plot against him. But she was only able to warn the king because of her cousin Mordecai. And in chapter 2, we are introduced to her cousin Mordecai as the man whom raised Esther after she was orphaned. He raised her in the capital city, and as a good fatherly figure did, in that time he routinely checked in on her after she was taken by the king and his officials. But before we start esteeming Mordecai too highly, he's not the character for us to look up to because he himself had many moral flaws. Technically, he should have been the predecessor to Liam Neeson and rescued Esther after she was taken, right? I was just kidding, but he really, he should have returned to Jerusalem with Esther and the other exiles when they were released to do so. But even then, he should have stopped Esther from being allowed to be taken by admitting to the government that he and Esther were Jews and to do so would compromise their faith as Jews. But as flawed as Mordecai was, remember God providentially placed him at the king's gate so that he could overhear the murder plot, whom he then went and told his cousin who was the, the wife of King Ahasuerus. And Esther, Queen Esther, told, told King Ahasuerus in Mordecai's name, it's a key detail, in his name, that there was a murder plot against his life, and the king's life was ultimately saved. The text tells us at the end of chapter 2 that, that Mordecai's name and the events that transpired are written down in the king's book of historical chronicles. And then we get to chapter 3, verse 1. It's after these things that the rest of chapter 3 happens. But what is missing here? We're to, we're to jump from the end of 2 to the beginning of verse 1, and we're supposed to say, what is missing here? The king's life is saved, and all that happens is Mordecai's name is written in a book, placed in a room in the palace he probably rarely ever goes into. Where's Mordecai's reward? Where's the king's gratitude? Where is the recognition that Mordecai should have been given after saving the king's life? It's not there. Keep reading verse 1 with me. It says that the king, the king Ahasuerus, he promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, not Mordecai, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. What? How does... Haman get to be promoted and Mordecai doesn't. The text doesn't tell us, but simply that Mordecai is passed over. He's forgotten about. 
where is God? Where is God when you do the right thing in your lives and it gets unnoticed? Where is God when you've been doing the right thing for years in your job, for years when you serve the church, for years when you are serving your family and there doesn't seem to be any recognition? There's no reward. There's no compliment. There's no gratitude. Have you been overlooked? Has someone else gotten the promotion, the advancement, the recognition, the esteem, the compliment that you deserve? God, are you there? Are you there, God? Verse 2. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. Now, I'll be honest, when I first read this, I assumed that they were bowing down to Haman in an act, an act of worship, as, as if Haman was a divine being. But to be clear here, in verse 2, they're only bowing down to him out of honor and respect, and we're going to see that to be more poignantly so in just a few moments. But nonetheless, still, how is this dude from nowhere, Haman, just a arrives on the scene here in chapter 3. How is he deserving of honor and respect? How does he get the king to command everyone to bow down to him? How is it fair? How is it right? And here's our attention. Verse 2 continues. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. And we want to say, that's right, Mordecai. You do your thing. Stay strong, brother. Don't give in because that's supposed to be you. If God isn't going to show up, then you got to take things in your own hands. You ever felt like that, church? But here's where the twist happens. It was one thing for Mordecai to be overlooked and someone else get the recognition. It was one thing for him to get passed over. But the impetus for his failure to obey, the impetus for his failure to not bow down to Haman, it's tied to a deeper issue. Read with me in verse 3. It says, the, the, then the king's servants who were at the king's gate, they said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? Come on, Mordecai. We know you just got overlooked. We know you're angry, but you can't be angry forever. Just bow down and show some respect. Come on, bro. It's better for you if you just assimilate. Get off the sidelines. Fall into place. Just keep trucking along, man. We don't want to have to turn you in, Mordecai. Verse 4, and when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. You see, Mordecai had been telling them day after day the reason why he would not bow down to Haman. It says this, he had told them that he was a Jew. The problem isn't his anger or his lack of respect alone. No, it is the fact that he, as a Jew, is ethnically opposed to Haman. He has a deep racism in his heart against Haman and the people that Haman represent. And his racism is triggered and then magnified by the advancement Haman received, which was supposed to be his. Church, this is how racism works today. Mordecai persistently told the servants that he wasn't going to bow down. He wasn't going to bow down because to do so would betray his own pride and his own people, their culture, their traditions, their history. I told y'all Mordecai ain't the one for us to follow, right? 
But where does this racism stem from? Look at verse 1 again with me. It says that Haman is an Agagite. Haman is the descendant of King Agag, whom was king over the historic people group, the Amalekites, whom the people of God had been at enmity with since the time of the Exodus. The Amalekites attacked Israel, the people of God in the wilderness, after they had been delivered out of slavery by the hands of the Egyptians. God's people were seeking asylum in a different nation, and the Amalekites rose up against them, not in Congress, but in an act of war. And as a result of this, God declared in Exodus 17, verses 14 through 16, that he would have war against Amalek from generation to generation, cursing them and committing them to destruction to the point where he would literally blot out their memory from under heaven. Fast forward a little bit into Israel's history in 1 Samuel chapter 15, when Israel had gotten their first human king, King Saul, whom Mordecai is a descendant, is a descendant of, no coincidence there. 1 Samuel 15, Saul and his army were supposed to go to battle against Amalek and he failed to obey the Lord's commands. And as he failed to obey the Lord's commands, the consequence is that it preserved the enmity between the people of God and Amalek all the way up to Esther chapter 3 where we're at this morning. And so Mordecai would not bow down to someone whose ethnic people group had been seeking their destruction for generations. He would not give up his racial hatred for Haman and his people despite the consequences of his racial sin. You see, church, racial sin is a lonely sin. It craves companionship. It wants to be reciprocated and left alone to its own manifestation long enough. It'll gain a partner, and that's what it does here in verse 5. Verse 5 says, And when Haman saw that Mordecai did did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. See, Haman's fury is attached to his racism against the Jews. So his identity of power and pride, they were, they were challenged by a lesser being And when he figures out that that lesser being, that subject of his, is of the ethnic people group that his people have been at enmity with for generations, it's not not enough alone to punish Mordecai. No, he's got to collectively punish Mordecai and all of his people. And what better way to punish the Jews than to carry out the plan of destruction that his people have been trying to carry out for generations? He would be the hero of his people. For Haman, what better collective punishment for the Jews is there than the planned destruction of them by genocide? Where is God? Where is God? Is he present? Does he care? Does he care that Haman's coming up with this plan just 20, 30 years after the temple has just been rebuilt in Jerusalem and now all of the Jews across the empire are going to be wiped out? Does God care? Where are you, God? And not just here in Esther, but all throughout history does God care about the numerous people groups that have been unjustly treated. Some even murdered throughout history because of the sin of racism. In the last century alone, we saw the Armenians murdered by the Turks. Jews by the Nazis. African Americans, blacks and Native Americans in America by whites in America. 
the Tutsis by the Hutus in Rwanda, Bosnians by the Serbians in the former Yugoslavia, Kurds by the Turks and the Iraqis in Kurdistan. The list goes on and on and on. But the answer to the question is yes, God does care. God is present. God is here. And we see this by the method of Haman's that Haman devises to carry out his genocidal plan. Look at verse 7 with me. It says, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they, they cast pure, they, that is, they cast lots before Haman, day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Haman employed the worldly practice of casting dice. It's also known to my community group as spiritual Yahtzee. He cast dice to determine the exact day of the year to carry out his murderous plot. His hatred for, for the Jews and for Mordecai was so intense that he persisted to cast lots day after day for an entire calendar year until it fell on the desired day, the desired outcome that he was looking for. But you see, this is the beginning of Haman's downfall. This is where the the event begins to turn around. This ancient practice of, of casting lots, known as pure, pure it, it was tied to a certain pagan religious system that believed that the outcome of the dice was determined by the alignment of the stars in the skies. But what Haman failed to acknowledge is that from the, the, the outcome of the roll of the dice to the alignment of the stars in the skies, that outcome of the cast of lot is according to the plans of the God of the very people group that he's trying to eliminate. Proverbs 16.33 says this, that the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. There is no coincidences. The God of Israel is the creator of heavens and the earth. He's the God of the stars, and he's also the God of every circumstance. And so what we're to see here in Esther is that God is at work in every story, in the details of that story. God is at work at the details and we're going to see this in the coming weeks as the day the lots were casted for gives God, not that he needs a certain amount of time, but we're going to see how the events play out. It's the right amount of time for God to carry out his rescue plan for Mordecai and the Jews by moving human agents to his plans. But just in case we're skeptical of this detail in Esther chapter 3, let us look back at a moment for, at verse 1. Haman's an Agagite. He's an Agagite, and this detail is included so that we as the readers of Esther would know that God is both present and that he cares. We're to know that we don't yet know how, no spoiler alerts this morning, that God will ultimately not allow the racist plan of Haman to be carried out, to succeed. Remember God's word to Moses in Exodus 17, verses 14 through 16. Haman wants the destruction of God's people, but God promises to bring destruction to his enemies. God is at work at the details. God is at work in the details. And church, do you know that God is at work in the details of your lives? Just like in Esther, his rescue plan for you, both situationally and eternally, is written in the details of your story. 
Right now, you may be facing a difficult situation, an overwhelming obstacle, a personal or cultural injustice, brokenness of some sort in your own lives. God cares for you and is present. Lean in on him. Trust in him. Look at how he is at work in the details of your lives. A helpful reminder of this truth for me is hanging up in this office right over here where the computer's at. It's from John Piper. It says this, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. Certainly sometimes we're aware of more than them, but nonetheless, church, God is present. He's at work in the details of your life. Stop and look. But as we continue reading chapter 3, asking where is God, we're also to ask the second question, where is justice? Where is justice? Haman has just received Mordecai's promotion. Haman gets to have everyone bow down to him and show him respect. And now Haman and his deep racism is going to carry out this plan for the global genocide of the Jewish people. All he needs now is the king's approval. He needs the king's authority to carry this plan out. And listen to how he unjustly pitches it to the king. Verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Do you hear the generalized, non-specific truth here? Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. Do you see his sly telling of half-truths here to leverage the desired response that he wants? He continues, it's not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Wow. And here's his exaggerated conclusion, all to get the king to buy what he's selling. Here's his product, verse 9. If it please the king... Let it be decreed that they be destroyed. Who? That they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver, which is equivalent to more than half the year's annual tax revenue of the entire Persian Empire. How's he going to get that kind of money? Yeah. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasuries. Where's justice? Church, let me ask you this. Have you ever been misrepresented? Have you ever been the recipient of prejudice? Have you ever felt like your voice and your actions were not heard or taken out of context to the extreme? How'd you feel? Were you angry? Were you at a loss as to what to do? With their lives on the line, this is the plight of the Jews here in Esther 3. Where is justice? God, I know you're at work in the details, but where are you in this? And to add fuel to the destructive fire of injustice, read on with me in verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and he gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you. He gave back the money that Haman was promising him. The people also to do with them as it seems good to you. 
The king's signet ring is his authority. No laws, edicts, or orders are passed or made without the seal of the king's signet ring. Just like in America, no, no executive order is official without the president's signature. King Ahasuerus' authority, it rests in his signet ring. And he whimsically and he willingly, he gives it away. See, we already know from chapters 1 and 2 that the king is a buffoon. He's spineless when he's met with the counsel, the wisdom of other people. But this is an entirely different issue, is it not? This is genocide that is about to happen. And we see the king doesn't care. The king doesn't care to find out the truth about the accusations that Haman is making. But he succumbs to the temptation of greed, both politically and economically. He's king for himself alone. All he sees is his own prophet. And he intensifies this injustice against the the Jews by declaring to Haman that he doesn't care about the money. The death of these disobedient people is, is chump change to him. He doesn't care how they're dealt with, just that they are dealt with. There's no justice here, church. There's no truth here. There's no representation for the Jews here. There's just a false accusation and then a verdict. And worse, the one who had the authority to squash this injustice, he became, in, he became complicit in it. The king entered into this injustice and he did everything he possibly could, literally in his power, to promote it and advance it. By giving away his signet ring, he wrote an executive order for the genocide of the Jews. And so for those who were the victims of such injustice, the Jews, and for those in the modern context, what is to be done? What is left to be done? Jumping ahead a little bit into next week's sermon, we get a glimpse of the action. Verse four, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4 say this. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and, they, and he put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes in every province wherever the king's command and his decree reached there was great mourning among the jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting and church can i say that this is the this is the proper biblical response to injustice of course it's not the only response to injustice as we will see next week but it is the beginning Whenever we are met with injustice or we see injustice, we feel injustice, church, this is where we start. We must mourn and weep and grieve over injustice. And this is for us, too. In our modern day American context, some of us need to hear that this response is okay, that it is biblical, that it is primary. And when it comes to issues such as Racial injustices, as we see here in Esther, 
those from minority cultures, you already know this. But you need to hear it and feel it and see it from your majority culture, brothers and sisters, that this response is right, that it is biblical, and that it is primary. Those in majority cultures need to respond to racial injustices as well when it is seen and when it's heard and when it's felt, when it impacts not just the majority culture, but minority cultures. So church, regardless of the issue, don't let anyone make you feel guilty for responding to injustices. Do not let anyone cast shade on you for grieving over racial injustices. And on a personal note, don't let anyone cast shade on you when you don't grieve the way that they think that you should grieve. Every single one of us grieves differently. I'm a silent griever, a silent mourner. We are grieving, weeping, lamenting over injustices. Racial injustices in particular and injustices in general, all injustices in general, then we are following the biblical example to weep and to mourn and to grieve. And this is what Jesus says as well, that it's blessed for those of us who mourn because we shall be comforted, Matthew 5, 4. This is where justice begins because Jesus tells us that when we mourn and when we weep and when we grieve, we grieve to a God who is alive, who is perfectly just and perfectly righteous. He hears our mourning and he sees our tears and he acts. Revelation 21.4 says that he shall wipe away every tear. Because Psalm 34.17-18 says that when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The Lord will execute justice because he is just. And in his justice there is comfort the Jews in Esther's time in Esther chapter 3 they will be comforted because God has not left them he's present and actively at work in the details of their lives to rescue them but we're not going to jump ahead too much but we're going to look back at verses 14 verses 12 through 15 as we address the final question of our text this morning where is God where is justice Now where is the king? The king has just given all of his authority to the enemy of the Jews. Verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, which is the day before all the Jews were supposed to celebrate Passover. Celebrate their deliverance from slavery by the hands of the Egyptians. And an edict according to all that Haman commanded, not the king, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language, it was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, whom was not present. It was sealed with the king's signet ring, which he gave away. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old women and children in one day, the 13th day, of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day, that day of destruction. Where is the king in all of this? Verse 15, the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king. There he is, he's present. 
And the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. The king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. A king's a leader of his people. He's the protector of his people. He's the one who utilizes his authority and his power for the best interests of his people. He's the one who's charged with bringing peace to the land and peace to those who dwell in it. And so I ask again, where is the king? While King Ahasuerus is is historically the, the king of the Persian Empire, he's no true king. He's simply the pagan ruler chosen by God to judge his people at that time for ultimately rejecting him as their king and disobeying his commands. For this was the reason why the Jews were in the exile in the first place. They rejected God as their king. They wanted human kings to rule over them, defend them from their enemies. And these kings led them into disobedience, which they were fully guilty of themselves. And they did this while they simultaneously rejected the one who could lead them, the one who could save them from their sins, the one who could defend them from their enemies. And here in Esther 3, we're to see that King Ahasuerus is not that king. He's not the king that was to deliver God's people. He's not the king that the Jews ultimately need. He has no concern for truth when Haman brought forth his accusations. He was not concerned about the individuality of the people group of Haman's tale. He coveted the personal profit he would gain by listening to Haman. Then he gave up his signet ring of authority and power, all for the plans of destruction. He passively then actively involved himself in the murder plot of the Jews. He wanted their goods to be plundered. He indulged in their destruction and he brought confusion to his people. And so we as the readers of Esther, we're meant to see all of these flaws of King Ahasuerus and we're to keep on reading because he ain't it. He is not the true king. He's not the true king that the Jews needed. He's not the true king that we need either to deliver us both physically and spiritually from this broken world. You see, the Jews of Esther and us too, we actually are deserving of the punishment that Haman is devising. I'll say that again. We are actually too deserving of the punishment that Haman is devising because all of us, All of us specifically have broken the laws of the one true king, God. We've rebelled against him, and this rebellion is known as sin. The individual punishment, not just the collective punishment, but the individual punishment for our sins is death. Each of us is guilty, yet our true king, God, is not like King Ahasuerus. He's a faithful king, a loving king. He loves his people so much that he not only is willing to rescue them from their enemies, but he's willing to save them. He's willing to save us, his enemies. And he does this by giving up his own son. He gives up his own son to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated for our sins. And if we keep reading this book here, we'll learn of his son, King Jesus. We learn of of Jesus who went to the cross for you and I to die in our place, but God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand to rule and to reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords for all of eternity. 
See, Christ is the Messianic king that the Jews hoped for in their exile. He's the king that the Jews in Esther 3 longed for and needed. He is the theological antitype to King Ahasuerus. Jesus is both the spiritual and physical deliverer of all God's people. He has the utmost concern for truth because he is truth. He cares for both the individual and the group as he was sent by God out of love for the whole world. He did not seek to gain any profit from this world as Satan tempted it to. He gave up his authority and power and humility to be crushed for our sins that we may have life. He allowed for his goods to be plundered on the cross. He actively involved himself in God's salvation plan for the Jews and for the entire world. He delights in the salvation of sinners and for those who know him as king and those whom are known by him as king, he gives peace, not confusion. Where is the king? Here is the king. Jesus is not just worthy to be bowed down to out of respect and honor. No, he's worthy to be bowed down to as king. And so, family and friends, how are we doing worshiping the king? Do we live every square inch of our lives, submitting our lives to him as if he is truly king? See, King Ahasuerus, he succumbed to the illogical, uh, the shallow logic of Haman. He went along with Haman's plan of destruction without consideration of what would transpire. And I just, I just wonder. I just wonder how often we, we listen to the shallow logic of Satan in different situations without consideration of what, was, what is going to happen. I wonder, do we listen to the illogical claims that Satan has to offer to us? as opposed to submitting our minds and our hearts and our speech and our actions to Christ our King in those situations. And so, brother, I want to ask, what shallow lie are you believing right now? Sister, what illogical claim about yourself are you believing right now? In just a few moments, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And for those of us who claim Christ Jesus as King, this meal and this time is for you. After I pray, I encourage you to pray right where you are to King Jesus. Reflect on what he's done for you on the cross, but at the same time, pray to King Jesus. Ask him, where are you not submitting to him? What lies are you believing? Repent of those things to King Jesus. Claim his victory and his power over your life as you take the supper. And for those of you who do not claim Jesus as your king. This meal is not for you, but this time is. See, God sent his son Jesus to die for you. He sent his son Jesus to die for me. And God raised his son Jesus from the dead. He made him king above every other kings, and this king is worthy to be worshipped. And so in these moments, I encourage you, I beg you, just take a minute. Pray to this king. Pray to King Jesus. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Believe that he is your king and commit to live your life for this king. And I promise you, unlike King Ahasuerus, he will not lead you into confusion, but he will only lead you into rest. He will only lead you into peace. So church, friends, let us pray. Let us respond accordingly. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you, God, for your word. We thank you, God, that you are present in the details. We thank you, God, that you are a just God. We thank you, God, 
You sent your son, Jesus, to be king of kings and lord of lords of our lives, and I just pray right now. I pray, Father, that, Lord, we would submit ourselves to you as king. Every square inch of our lives, our thought life, our speech, our actions, what we do, I pray, Father God, that they would come under the kingship of Lord Jesus. Thank you for Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for us. We would not be here without it. Lord, as we go to the table, I pray that we would reflect on that. We would claim his victory over sin and over death in our own lives, God. And I pray, Father, for those who do not know you, God. I pray that they would know you in these moments. They would know you as king. They would bow down and worship you, God. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.